Well, if you wouldn't mind turning with me in your Bibles to the book of James, that great epistle written by the Lord's brother. And our text is going to be James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And as you're turning there, that text can be found on page 1011 to 1012 in your pew Bibles, if you're utilizing those, 1011 through 1012. And in the spirit of thanksgiving, while y'all are turning there, I just wanted to say thank you to this congregation. My wife and I moved here from the land flowing with milk and honey, that is Wisconsin, where we grew up. At least it's flowing with milk, I suppose. But we moved here just over a year ago, and this is the only church we've ever attended. And in God's providence, while Saya and I were moving into Jackson, we were still yet 30 minutes outside the city in a U-Haul. And we got a phone call from Ashley, one of the youth workers here at the church. And she offered Saya, my wife, an internship without ever having met her, just seeing her on the roll for new students at RTS. And so she got plugged in, and I got plugged in by proxy, and we've been sucked in ever since in all the best ways. So we praise God for this congregation. There's much to be thankful for this time of year, and I'm thankful to be preaching the word to you all this evening. I've entitled tonight's message, The Folly of Favoritism. It's James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to begin reading now. Verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. What is pure and undefiled religion? James has begun answering that question in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Dean preached on that text a couple weeks ago. I want to remind us of what it says. Verse 26, it says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. You want pure and undefiled religion, he says? Bridle your tongue, number one. Verse 27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, i.e. the least of these, to visit those individuals, That's number two. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's number three. I think James is going to continue to unpack for us now what is pure and undefiled religion in verses one through nine. And that is to not show partiality. 
I think sometimes we get kind of fearful of that word religion, specifically in Protestant circles at times, because it kind of stresses some of the more external ceremonial aspects of our faith, but it is a biblical word, and I think it needs to be retained in our theological vocabulary. Do you desire pure and undefiled religion, James says? Well, then do not commit partiality and embrace the royal law to love, which is ultimately Christ's law. So why should you not show favoritism or partiality? Maybe some of your translations say, have no respect as to persons. Well, I want to come at that question through three angles this evening as we look at verses 1 through 9 together. The first angle is partiality defined. That's in verses 1 through 4. What is partiality? What does James mean by it? Well, James leaves absolutely no doubt in regards to what he means by partiality by the end of this text. He kind of swats a fly with a tank, you could say. He defines it, and then he illustrates it. That's what I love about the book of James. It almost preaches itself. And so what exactly is partiality? Well, look with me at verse 1. He says, my brothers, or brothers and sisters. In other words, he's referring to Christians here. This letter is directed to believers. It's directed ultimately even to you tonight, which means that the sin of partiality is something that we must continually crucify even in the church today. My brothers, show no partiality. That's a universal negative, no exceptions. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That word partiality in the original, it quite literally means to accept a face, to accept a face, which is another way of saying you look at somebody and you make a judgment call based off of the appearance of that individual that you're looking at. It really is bias based on appearances or status or the way that things appear to be. And oftentimes this kind of has a, a what's in it for me connotation attached to it. As you look at individuals that maybe you could get something out of, and so you prejudge them, you preassess them wrongfully. Jude chapter 16, or Jude verse 16, rather, there's only one chapter in that book. <laughs> Jude verse 16, it describes individuals who show favoritism to gain advantage. That kind of thing is included here in James' definition of partiality. John 7, 24 says that we are not to judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We are to judge individuals righteously, not looking at face value and making an assessment. Paul says this elsewhere, 1 Timothy 5, verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. That pretty much covers the gamut. He says, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. In other words, you don't have an agenda when you see someone. You have a category for that individual, and you file them into that category. This is what that kind of person is like without even getting to know the individual. Do all things. Keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And then, in verse 1, James brings the Lord Jesus Christ into the equation. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, do not forget that the book of James is a faith book. So why does he bring Jesus into the equation? Well, it's because these believers, 
and you here tonight, assumedly, have faith in this great, glorious, the Lord Jesus Christ. And partiality, it's totally incommensurate with your profession of faith in him. It does not match up. This is Jesus you're talking about, the one that you claim to follow. And you're going to have partiality based off of someone's appearances? Do you understand who Christ is? Do you understand his love for all men? Do you understand that he hung out with sinners and saints alike? Poor and rich alike? He regarded no man as more significant than another in regards to their social status? It was said of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 that he did not care about anyone's opinion for he was not swayed by appearances. The original there says that he did not look at people's faces. It's almost the exact same thing that we have here in James chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 11 prophesying about the Messiah, it said that he would not judge by what his eyes see, but with righteousness he would judge the poor. Not just the rich, but also the poor. He judged them justly also. This is the Lord whom we serve, and partiality should have no place in our faith towards him. James now goes on to illustrate what he means in verses two through four. And he's going to use the illustration of a well-off individual, I'm going to say, and also of a poor individual. That's what James calls him here. And he targets their clothing. He almost kind of stereotypes their clothing, if you will. And just as a parenthesis here, in regards to clothing and what we wear to church, I just want to make this observation. What you wear to church is not the end-all, be-all of Christian spirituality. But it is important. And I understand that God is our Father, and we can approach him with boldness and with confidence as the Father that he is, but he's also the sovereign king of the universe. He's the most important being in all of the universe. You will never have a more important meeting with any individual on this side of glory than God. And so that's something that we need to take into consideration, I think. Does our, our clothing and our apparel that we wear to church reflect that this meeting on a weekly basis is important to us? And I think that it should. So now James, he kind of targets in his parable of sorts here this finely clothed man. I want you to notice here that he does not call him the rich man. He calls him a finely clothed man, and we're going to talk about that here in a moment. But verse 2, it says... For if a man wearing a gold ring, quite literally a gold-fingered man, you got gold finger who's walking into your congregation. <laughs> if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, that is most likely a house church kind of gathering in the first century. This man, though, he's not described as rich, and I think James does that purposely. He's going to refer to non-believing individuals as rich individuals later on in the text. Now, God is not condemning wealth here. He absolutely is not. There are plenty of individuals in the scriptures who are wealthy. You can think of Abraham, Job, Joseph of Arimathea. God does not condemn wealth. What he does condemn is the love of wealth. It's the love of wealth. I think if we 
had to call a spade a spade tonight. Relatively speaking, all of us are rich, relatively speaking, in relation to the world tonight. I read a Gallup poll recently that said the worldwide median household income is $9,700. Meaning, if your household takes in more than $10,000, whether it's with one spouse working or two spouses working or you got a kid or two that's also working, if you got $10,000 coming into your home, that automatically puts you in the top 50% of world earners. And the United States is seventh richest on that same Gallup poll. There is a lot that we have to be thankful come this time of year. I think that should humble us. I think that should sober us. But we also must be reminded, beloved, that our treasure is not here, ultimately. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have been raised with him. Therefore, set your mind and your heart on the things that are above where Christ is seated at God's right hand. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, know where your treasure is. Be on your guard against all forms of covetousness. For life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Samuel Rutherford The Puritan has a penetrating statement here on this point. He says, build your nest upon no tree here. For you see that God has sold this forest to death. Close quote. Believer, know where your treasure ultimately lies. That's the rich man. Now we have this poor individual here in The second half of the parable says, And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. That word shabby, it's translated in the book of Revelation. It's filthy, odious, probably stinks to high heaven even. This individual might look like somebody that you see on county line, driving to Pear Orchard Church every Sunday. How confident would you be to grab an individual like that in love and take them into this sanctuary, sit them down on the front row in love, and bless the Lord who brought them there? This poor man is in difficult straits. This poor man, he comes in in shabby clothing. Verse 3, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place. In other words, you have VIP seating at the front of the sanctuary. Well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there. (laughs) You get the standing room only seat, (laughs) probably in the back of the sanctuary. You stand over there or sit down at my feet, which is really a sign of subjection. Know your place, poor man. (laughs) Maybe we'll have you in our congregation, in our midst, because we're morally obligated as believers to do so but we'll just tolerate you and we'll functionally shun you. Some of these believers in James's day were doing such things. You stand over there or sit down at my feet. I want you to see now in verse four, the evil of this train of thought. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
This is where you see the teeth of partiality. The disease of discrimination. The pride of prejudice. (laughs) For you, Jane Austen, fans in the house tonight. He calls this thing evil. It could also be translated as evil motives, evil intentions, evil opinions, evil conclusions, evil thoughts that you are having about these individuals based off their appearances. And James, he targets wealth here. But this also has broader application to making distinctions in the body of Christ sinfully in general also. I think this is something that Peter fell into. If you can remember in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I opposed Peter to his face because he made an unnecessary distinction between Jew and Gentile. He refused to eat with them. After he had already received the vision in Acts chapter 10, where God declared all individuals clean and he was to associate with them, so that he feared the circumcision party and the men that came from James, and he separated himself from them. And it says in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. It's a very serious charge against an apostle, even. Now, with that being said, I don't think that it is wrong to recognize differences that we have here in this congregation. Paul recognizes the differences that individuals have. Later on in Galatians chapter 3, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. He's acknowledging there's a difference between the two. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He recognizes those distinctions and those differences. But beloved, we fall into sin when we start putting up barriers, boundaries between individuals because of those differences. That's when we stepped over the line. Richard Baxter, another Puritan on this point, he says, I will never join with them that will have but one form in Christ's church. In other words, one kind of person in Christ's church. Tis no sign of the family of God to have no children in it, but strong men only, nor of the hospital of Christ to have none sick, nor of his net to have no fish but good, nor of his field to have no tares. And I think for our context tonight, we could say to have none who are less well off than others. Flesh and blood have often enticed me to separation and ease, but it's too easy a way to be of God, close quote. It's too easy to only buddy up next to people who are exactly like you. There is no organization in the entire world like the church. PhDs, dropouts. Black, white. Male, female. There is a place for you in the body of Christ. All ground is level at the foot of this cross. Partiality based on appearances is wicked and must have no place in the church. Who are you, perhaps, prone to be partial towards? Is it the rich? Poor? Someone who has a different skin color than you? Someone who's in a different social class as you? They run in different circles than you? This kind of thing must be dealt with. The second angle that I want to look at partiality now 
his partiality challenged. That's in verses 5 through 7. James is now going to demonstrate just how foolish partiality actually is by asking a series of questions of partiality. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised and has promised to those who love him? He's saying the poor, the ones that you are oppressing, actually, those are the typical individuals that God builds his kingdom with. Man, this is a a total shell shock for me when I was a young Christian. I thought that I need, to, I need to become famous <laughs> to have a witness for Jesus Christ. I thought that if I could just play in the NFL and I could be you know, interviewed after a game, then I can give glory to God and draw people to him, and then he'd finally have a witness in the world. Then God could really get to work about bringing revival. And that's not the way that God typically runs his kingdom. He takes the nobodies, the poor, those who are rejected by the world, that's who he typically builds his kingdom with. Now, with that being said, the salvation of the rich is absolutely possible. Jesus talks about that in the Gospels. Though it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom, even this is possible with God. But we need to take seriously things that Jesus says in the Gospel elsewhere. He says in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, not even just poor in spirit. He said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. What do you do with that? Is he saying people that just have subsistence living automatically get into the kingdom of God? I don't think he's saying that. I think what he is saying is that the poor are generally generally quicker to recognize that they need God to rely upon him than the rich usually are. I think the, the zenith text on this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Many of you know this text, verses 26 through 31. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's why God typically builds his church this way, so that he gets the credit and we get none of it. We can't make some claim to having resources that God can now use in bringing us into the kingdom. He sovereignly chooses to save those whom he is pleased to sovereignly save. And he says he typically builds his kingdom from the bottom. Verses 6 and 7, it goes on. But you have dishonored the poor man. What a tragic statement that is. These are the ones who are being chosen by God. And you are dishonoring them? In essence, you are dishonoring Christ. You remember the parable of the sheep and the goats? Matthew chapter 25 says, What you did to the least of these, it was like you did it unto me. And what you didn't do to the least of these, you did not do unto me. Proverbs 19, 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him 
for his deed. Beloved, do good to the poor. You never know where the face of Christ is, even as you do good to the poor. C.S. Lewis, he says, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is especially holy. For in him, Christ is truly hidden, the glorifier and the glorified glory himself is truly hidden. Do you look at your neighbor like that? This is the holiest object that could be presented to my senses. And if they're a Christian, they're especially glorious in that Christ dwells within this believer. The second half of verse six, it says, are not the rich, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court. Notice how he calls these individuals rich. I think they're trusting in their wealth, not in God. Are not the rich Verse seven, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? (laughs) That word that's used for oppressed there, it's actually used in Acts chapter 10 in describing Satan's work in holding down the church and oppressing her. And the rich were doing this same kind of thing in James's day and even into our own. Acts chapter 10 says that Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. So what James is saying here is this. Not only is showing partiality towards the rich not benefiting you on a spiritual level because it's sin, it's not even benefiting you on a worldly level. These guys are suing you. They're dragging you into court. They're blaspheming the name that you hold in such a high regard. It is the nature of a scorpion to sting. And you're playing with scorpions by trying to buddy up next to rich believers. And I think their reasoning for doing so is very worldly. They wanted to have some sort of influence through these rich individuals. You're just playing their game. You're jumping into the snake pit. And maybe tonight you're you're trying to get into the wrong crowd, to get in with the wrong crowd because of their influence because of who they're connected to, because of the individuals that they might be able to get you to. That is a disingenuous way of viewing people. Partiality, it it makes no sense on a spiritual or on a worldly level. (laughs) And it must be challenged. What then is to be done about this partiality problem. That leads us now to our third angle in verses 8 and 9. This is partiality remedied. James now brings something that he calls the royal law to bear here on this discussion. He says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, if that discussion of law in relation to the New Testament Christian today makes you nervous because we're saved by faith and by faith alone, amen, I want you to hear what the Westminster Confession in chapter 19 in speaking of the moral law of God 
says on these things, and we touched on that tonight even in our larger catechism question. It says, this law, after his fall, that is Adam's fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness. The moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, Christians and non-Christians. The moral law has a bearing on your life. To the obedience thereof. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. Believers, we are not antinomians. We love and cherish the law of God. We love loving our neighbor as ourselves. That is our heart's desire. And that's what we are called to, even here in the New Testament, quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, 18. James gives us such an esteemed title as the royal law. Now, why does he call this law royal? What makes this law royal? Well, it's royal because of its origin. comes from the very throne room of heaven. comes from the king of kings, the Lord of lords. It comes from his very throne room, the triune God. It belongs to the king. This is the apex of kingdom rules for ethical conduct. Paul even says in Galatians 5, Verse 14, that the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a a, a type of mountaintop law. Jesus even says that this is like the second greatest commandment in the entire Bible. Its origin makes makes it royal. Its breadth makes it royal. This pertains to all the king's image bearers, all the king's creation. This has a kind of royal sweep attached to it. This is an indiscriminate kind of love that we are to give to one another. We are to not only regard ourselves, but others in our thinking. It's royal because of its origin, its breadth, and finally its beauty. This is a majestic, beautiful law filled with splendor. When someone loves their neighbor as themselves, there's something beautiful about that. Jesus says that you will know my disciples by this kind of love. I was a recipient of this kind of love when I went back to Wisconsin last weekend for a wedding and the flights out of Jackson got delayed very much so. You ever been there? And we were in Dallas because of these flight delays and we probably weren't going to make our connecting flight. And that's when you really start praying, right? And when we were in Dallas to make our connecting flight, the lady said over the intercom, because of all the flight delays, it would be very much appreciated, I'm sure, if everyone remained seated except for those who had immediate connecting flights to catch. We made our connecting flight by about 30 seconds. I'm sure those with connecting flights did appreciate that woman. I don't know if she was told this by her airline and commanded to do this or what, or she just did it out of her own volition, but I appreciated her loving us as she would have loved herself in that moment. This is a beautiful law. We're to love our neighbor as we love ourself. The world, on the other hand, tells you to love yourself as you love yourself. Forget about others. It's about me, myself, and I. That's who I'm living for, ultimately. 
The Bible, though, it never encourages self-love. In a sense, it kind of just assumes it. It assumes that we look out for number one. What am I going to do? Who am I going to hang out with? When am I going to go eat? When am I going to do X, Y, or Z thing? The closest thing that I can think of in the scriptures to the Bible teaching a kind of self-love is Philippians 2, when Paul says to look out not only for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the closest thing I can think of. And Paul says you should actually use your looking out for your own interests as a spur, (laughs) as a motivation, as a context for you looking out for the interests of others. With the same desire that you have for yourself to be clothed, to be well-fed and what have you, you now show that to others. The Bible says that in the last days, people will be lovers of self. The Bible calls us to a kind of countercultural love. How would you treat you if you're the one begging on the street? Fell on hard times. Got dealt a difficult hand in life. Understand that it can be difficult to not think the worst of people at times in some of those situations. But even in those situations, we must ask ourselves, how can I love this individual like I would desire to be loved? And herein lies the problem. You and I do not love like we are commanded to love. James says here in verse 8, that if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Beloved, we have not done well, ultimately, in keeping this commandment. And then verse 9 comes into play. We've shown partiality, and we're committing sin, and we've been convicted by the law as transgressors. The ultimate remedy for our partiality problem, it must come from outside of ourselves. It must come from someone who indeed loved his neighbor perfectly as he loved himself, who regarded not man's faces and their status in life, who judged righteously and perfectly, who kept the last six of the commandments perfectly in loving his neighbor as himself and the first four in loving the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need his righteousness. We need him to be our mediator on our behalf. If anything, this text shows us that we have fallen pitifully short of the standard to which God has called us. But the answer is not to try harder. The answer is to believe. It's to believe in the one who has loved neighbor perfectly. And in our sanctification, we now work out our salvation with fear and trembling from the justification that we have received in Christ. In fact, Jesus says that he who is forgiven little loves little. If you're not forgiven of your sin, you're going to show partiality all the day long. You must rest in Christ and recognize how much you have been forgiven of your sin and your partiality, and that will help your partiality problem melt away. Do you want to kill favoritism? Look to Christ and how he loved Now, he shed his unmerited favor. Actually, 
the demerit that you had upon yourself and he showed favor upon you anyways. Look to him and to his righteousness and your partiality will slowly dissipate. In fact, James chapter three says that the wisdom from above is impartial and sincere. The wisdom that God is going to give to us by faith alone in Christ alone, that will enable us to be impartial and sincere. But it must be given to us from above. And so I want to encourage you tonight to embrace the one who has shown you that unmerited favor in his person and work so that you might now go out and show it to others without partiality. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are humbled by the reality that we have not loved our neighbor as ourself, as you have commanded us to do, God. We praise you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did. And it is in him that we are righteous. It is in him now that we become impartial and sincere towards our neighbor. Help us to love much based off of our realization of how much we have indeed been forgiven. God, may partiality have no place in Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church but may we love with the same kind of love with which you have loved us in Jesus. In his name we pray these things. Amen.